0: Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to episode 248 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis.
1: And my name is 38 Degrees. 38
0: Degrees. Really
1: not my name. (laughs) Being as everybody likes it when we talk about the weather, I figured that I would talk about the weather and introduce myself because it's never been this cold in probably 30 years on Christmas Eve in Florida, and I'm in shorts.
0: 38 degrees. I would kill for 38 degrees right now.
1: I tell you what, we're at
0: 6. What? We're at 6 degrees. We spent the last couple of days in the negatives, so this is actually a heat wave. And that's my lucky number, so good for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not so lucky for us. It's cold. Well, you just said it was six,
1: and that's good. I've got chicken noodle soup on the stove, so I'm actually cooking some warm, yummy soup
0: and uh, hanging out with you. What does Florida do when it's 30 degrees? Does everyone freak out and buy bread and milk? No, and all but they to, like, all have scarves
1: down? and long coats on. I was driving outside. This lady was walking in her, like, winter Chicago coat and a scarf and Stuff all over her head, and I'm like, Oh my god, really? <laughs> of course, I'm wearing shorts with my Michigan sweatshirt on.
0: I love it! Awesome. So, like you mentioned, it is Christmas Eve. Obviously, this episode will come out after Christmas. So, wishing everybody a happy holiday and all of that.
1: Happy holidays!
0: It's also the last episode of 2022. <gasps> well, I'll be That's pretty exciting. Great year! Great year, partner. Just saying, yeah. Super excited. Yeah. Barb and I just want to thank everyone yep. who has listened to the podcast over this last year.
1: And I'd like to know why everybody made fun of me for listening to Kenny Loggins. Blake, Elvis. <laughs> so at least I know people are listening because they always make fun of me.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. They take their shots at me. No worries. Uh-huh. It's fair. Okay. Okay. <laughs> It's been a great year for the podcast. We talked to some amazing people in our industry. So we want to give a big shout out to all the guests that have come on to tell their story and share with us so much information.
1: Yeah, without them, we wouldn't be us. We wouldn't even have a podcast
0: if it wasn't for people. Absolutely. So thank you. It's the guests that make this show what it is.
1: And we get to listen to you pronounce names. That's kind of special too. Well, some
0: people say I'm special. (laughs) The nice thing is, is 2023 is already shaping up to have some great guests. We are lined up and ready to go.
1: Yeah, that's because you packed in like five of them this past week, bro.
0: Well, we got to get people going. I know. People are excited to be on and we did. when they ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a good thing I get along with you. There you go. But we also want to thank our sponsors. Oh, heck yeah. That showed us some love in 2022. So many great companies supported us, like American Smiles, Asiga, Exocad, Grow3x, iCortica, Colzer Refining, and Whitmix. So please go back and show them some love. Order something and tell them that you heard them on Voices from the Bench. We love our sponsors. We sure do. Thank you, everybody. We're also extremely excited for 2023. Dun, dun, dun. One thing that we're super excited for is Barb and I will be recording in Clark's Grand Ballroom at the LMT Lab Day Chicago. And I love your inflection on that. Grand Ballroom.
1: And it's Grand Ballroom, for those of you that know me.
0: <laughs> it's actually grand. Yes. Not mediocre, but grand. <laughs> so that is going to be an amazing experience. And the rumor has it is that there's going to be some cool podcast swag. To get only if you stop by and see us. I know, I know, I know. I'm going to wear it. I hope so. I am. It's going to be a great year for our industry, and we hope to bring you so many more fascinating and interesting people and companies to you every week. But here's the deal. It's no secret that I find a lot of guests online, but sometimes someone will recommend a guest, or sometimes someone will just ask to come on. They're all great ways to get on the podcast. So if you want to be featured on the podcast in 2023 or know somebody, reach out. It's that easy. Just let us know. Just because you're not active on Instagram doesn't mean you don't have a great story to tell.
1: Yeah. Har, har, har.
0: From the bench, of course. (laughs) From the bench. Yep. So Barb, (laughs) how often do you get your nails done? Never. I get my toes done every
1: other week because my toes do not work on ceramics and Half the time, I'm crushing my left thumb because when I use my disc or burr or anything, my thumb gets in the way. So I never, ever do my nails. Sorry.
0: Really? Yep. Usually you see people online showing their work and they got some pretty decent nails. That we mean, just Not you. I have nice toes, though. Just saying. I guess I'm wrong. I always thought Ceramis had nice nails, but apparently they don't. I don't. You don't. Okay. And removable technicians, eh, they never have nice nails. They're always polishing those things off. But why are we talking about fingernails? I don't know, Elvis. Why are we talking about fingernails? (laughs) Because a chemical company that is big in the beauty industry at one time hired a lawyer who, after a lot of hard work, eventually brought to our industry one of the best printed mouth guard resins to the market. Yes, I know. This is a super great story. Keep going. Ira Rosenahl was brought on to Keystone Industries to help with all their boring legal stuff. Yeah, way back when. Ira didn't know anything about dental. But because our industry is so amazing, Ira was able to bring Keysplint to the market. Ira doesn't really hold back anything while he tells us what's it like to design, create, test, perfect, get FDA cleared, and bring to the market a resin has set the bar for so many other printed splints. True that. Absolutely, it's a great story of success that is a result of hard work, a lot of smart people, and understanding what the labs need to do what we do best. So join us as we chat with Ira Rosen Rosendahl. I already forgot it. Rosenall. 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 Outside of the podcast, I actually have a real job. I know, it's hard to believe. I get to work directly with dental offices to provide amazing smiles to patients. But don't we all? But I do it with data instead of a handpiece or a mill. I use data that most labs already have but don't know how to access it or use it. Enter iCortica. I-C-O-R-T-I-C-A. If your lab is already using Magic Touch, great, you're halfway there. If you aren't, then go get Magic Touch just so you can use iCortica. It will be worth it. Let's be honest. Access to -to easy-to-understand information is the key to any sales or customer service position. Did I mention that they have bar graphs? This is exactly what iCortica does for me on a daily basis. Every morning, I wake up to an email showing me the risks and the opportunities across all of the customers. I can then dive in to see specific customer information and look at so much like sales by product, trends by category or restoration. I can see all the notes and I can even see the remake percentage. It allows me to know who I should talk to about what without having to spend hours digging into production software or making a ton of Excel spreadsheets. It's all right there. Every metric I need to be successful. So do yourself and your lab a favor and head over to icortica.com forward slash voices or send Rob Nozell an email at rob at and start understanding your dental offices in a way you never had before. Check out this episode's show notes for all of those links, and we thank you for your support of the podcast, iCortica, and I personally thank you for making my job easier. Voices from the Bench The
2: Interview bothers my kids and my wife. It doesn't bother me. (laughs) <laughs> really? Well, prepared to not be bothered. All right. Yeah.
0: Because I will still probably say it wrong. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's
2: been my experience.
0: <laughs> Long time coming guest to the podcast for his first time Ira Rosenau. Oh, I've er- Ira Rosenau. Ira Rosenau. Nailed it. <laughs>
1: He nailed it after four tries. Yes. Well done, Elvis. I over
0: psych myself out every time. You never cease to amaze me. Uh, You're welcome, Barb. I know. (laughs) So Ira, I've seen you at so many meetings and I think it was Vision this year, maybe, where we kind of connected in the hotel bar. We kind of talked about think an episode needs to happen. Yeah, I think that
2: sounds about right. And uh, 11 months later, I've been a fan and a listener for for a while. And it's been a great educational tool for me when I came into dental and as I had a lot to learn. This has been a really good and valuable resource. So I thank you both for uh, unknowingly being good educators for me. Thank you. That's not our intention,
0: but I'm glad it happened. (laughs) So Ira, before we get into your history, you're with Keystone Industries, right? Correct. Not to be confused with the Keystone implant. Correct. Which
2: has happened for a. It happens of with me. <laughs> companies occasionally get confused for each other. We've uh, politely just tried to help each other get our customer bases over those confusions. And luckily, one of the few areas that my company, Keystone Industries, doesn't play in is in implants. So there's not a lot of risk of really stepping on toes. Sure. We occasionally have to clarify something.
0: Sure. So with Keystone Industries, I know of it because of the famous night guard, Key Splint! Yes. I mean, that thing's hugely popular. It's got to be up there with your top product.
2: Yeah, it is definitely up there. And it's been a transformative product, not just for dental professionals, but for this business. It's really... Uh, It did everything we hoped it would do, which was provide an excellent 3D printed solution for good um, therapies for Bruxism and TMJ. And at the same time, allow us to kind of reposition and reimagine ourselves as leaders in the 3D space. So being able to create a product that's been so well adopted across many different printing platforms has allowed us as a company to raise our profile and start being um, better educators and partners to the space around 3D printing. So it's been a critical product for the company and uh, really was a place where we kind of planted our flag. Whose brainchild was it, if I might ask? Uh, 3D printing in general was come about by Keystone. Um, really, our background, Barb, is we serve two primary verticals as a chemical manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So one is Dental, which is company has been around for about 100 years, and the current family has owned it since the mid-70s. But the other major vertical we serve is cosmetic nail coatings. So we are probably the world's largest supplier of reactive nail coatings, two-week gel manicures, dip. Oh dip manicure. my god, yeah, really? So if you look at the history of the company, and I'm gonna this is a long way for, for me to answer your question. The company started as a dental company, really started to work with our denture acrylic and making our denture polymer, mm-hmm. um, Diamond D, which ultimately then kind of segued into the cosmetic nail space. The owner of the business. Um, really wanted to get in something more in the beauty side. And we became one of the biggest players in the cosmetic space and probably the world's largest manufacturer of gel manicures, you know, the 2 UV curable manicure. Well, the reality is the last thing before I came to Keystone, when I was just regular old outside counsel and and lawyer for them, the last big thing I did for them was a big piece of patent litigation on the nail technology. And when I got to Keystone... A year or so later and started to understand the dental business and Keystone's product category and where things were headed, um, re- we really started under- to look at 3D printing as a, as a growth area and as an area that would kind of erode our existing product catalog. And mm. once I started really digging in, I started asking the basic questions of, isn't this basically just a photopolymer like our nail gel? And at the end of the day, the science is so similar. And what Keystone had in place already was... 25 to 30 years of making nail gel that goes on the body that has to be biocompatible. We have all the technical um, experts in-house to do that. We have the infrastructure to make it at scale. We have ISO 13485 certifications as a medical device manufacturer, and we have our dental presence. So we had a lot of the pieces in place to go, hey, we could, we could be an early adopter of 3D printing as a, one of the first manufacturers in the U.S. making the resin. Mm-hmm. and we actually have a lot of those pieces already in place so that we don't have to build everything from scratch. So that's a long way of answering your <laughs> question, Barb. Yeah. The brainchild is but- really collectively us thinking about it, and it was me driving in and starting to make a huge bet early on that Keystone really could play in this space. Yeah. Once we got into the formulating Splints became a quick focus for us because we realized that existing 3D technologies were lacking and that the the resins and the science, the materials were very hard and very brittle. And over a pretty short period of time, they would have micro fractures and break, which is Mm -hmm. not a great result for anyone. Yeah. We set about to try and solve that by creating a night guard or a splint resin that would have very high impact resistance Mm -hmm. and would have an excellent wear properties while at the same time being more comfortable than a really hard acrylic. And we landed on the formulation for Keystone Soft and then we're able to get it regulatory cleared on a global basis and we're able to partner it into, you know, quickly into systems like Carbon but then into, you know, 30 or 40 different printing systems such that Keystone as a company has never put out a product that's been as heavily tested and developed as this product has been. It's gone through about 250 biocompatible passing checkpoints to wow. be able to be printed in 30 to 40 different printing systems. It really was a brainchild of, um, of the team. It had my energy behind it to kind of push 3D printing. And we quickly as a team recognized we could make a splash early on with something like um, Keysplint Soft.
1: And you damn well did.
2: And It's well <laughs> amazing because there's any number of times you set out a strategy and it never works, right? Yeah. Go, okay, next. This one actually worked as designed, which is, is nice. It, it's, yeah. it's nice for the story and it makes you feel good that you put the time and energy into to think about it and to partner the right way and, and watch it have success. And the beauty of this product is in, that I love about it is everybody wins. Yeah. The patient gets a great device. The doctors make a good profit and get a quick turnaround on a device that can be replaced. It doesn't have a lot of adjustment time in the chair for the doctor. The labs are able to print at scale and have a very good profit picture with their product. My distribution partners love it. My printer partners are happy. It's one of the few things I've ever done where everybody seems to be, <laughs> which is unusual. So, yeah. Especially with your background as being a lawyer, I'm sure it's yeah. the only time you've made we everybody are, happy. Right. That, because, uh, <laughs> the practice of law leaves everyone displeased. <laughs> and usually only the litigation attorneys uh, make out in that scenario. But, I, but in all honesty, that was a big reason why I was ready to make a change after 20 years was you know fighting with people for 20 years every single day is exhausting oh, and I it doesn't imagine. feel super gratifying for what you're doing long term to help people or the society around you so it was it really I loved it I was really good at it I enjoyed it for a lot of years but it got to the point where I needed to do something where I was sort of using my powers for good and trying to build a team and build a product and be entrepreneurial rather than just kind of take our grenade to a problem <laughs> and watch the chaos ensued. So it's been much more fun doing this.
1: So that's a great segue because Elvis and I usually start the podcast with, so how did you get into our industry? So can you just kind of take us back a little bit to when you became a lawyer and when you made that decision and how you found Keystone and decided to partner with them? And I know you went into it a little bit, but we were pretty much talking about the night guards.
2: Yeah. Meant, um, I'm sorry, the splint. Sure. N- not a problem. I practiced as a commercial attorney in Philadelphia for 20 years. I worked at one law firm that I joined right out of law school when I graduated Boston University. I focused my practice on commercial litigation. So any kind of a dispute that a business would get involved in, I had uh, developed over 20 years a lot of experience with. Uh, Give me a good idea about how not to do things. And, um, <laughs> after 15, 18 years, it got really kind of tiresome, just um, the grind of always fighting with people. You know, it's it's really exhausting to do something great for a client for two or three years. And at the end of the case, they would say, one guy actually looked at me and said, you were fantastic. You did a wonderful job. Thank you very much. I hope to never speak to you again. Oh. And, um I understand that. I really do. It's a service that people need and don't want. Yeah, that they have to consume, but it's hard to build a business around. <laughs> I never want to speak to you again, yeah. and so it, that dynamic got tiresome for me. Um, I branched out in my legal career to do more transactional stuff, to do real estate and and uh, some mergers and acquisitions. But but primarily, I was a litigator, which allowed me to get a real broad sense of. Um, variety of commercial issues a business is going to deal with from cradle to grave. Um, Keystone Industries was a client of mine for about 15 years. I got to know them early on through a piece of litigation that they brought into the firm, and I was asked to handle for them when I was about 30. And I showed up in court for an injunction hearing, and the owners here were... Furious (laughs) furious <laughs> that they asked like this baby-faced 30-year-old to show up <laughs> and handle their, their important matter for them. And I went on to win the case and develop uh-huh, a great, cool. really great relationship with those people and ultimately to join them both as, you know, the president of their dental company and I'm still general counsel for this business. So I still handle legal issues for these guys when they pop up, but the thing that gets me out of bed every morning is kind of the opportunity to run this business. So in about 2015, I must have been having a particularly annoying day at work, and I called the owner here, and <laughs> he and I talked back and forth for a couple of years about whether there was any way to do anything together. And, and I called and said, hey, you know, remember that thing we were talking about? And the prior president of the dental group had just resigned about uh, 15 minutes earlier. Which oh, my God. That's great, great timing. Interesting timing. <laughs> and so Wow. Uh, we were often talking and they were very patient with me. They knew that it would take me a year or so to learn this business and to learn the industry before I could start to, you know, really make some smart decisions and, and add some value. There were fantastic people in the dental industry who Heck yeah, kind with their time who, you know, Dennis Urban, I still have the denture sitting on my desk. Dennis came to our office one day. He sat with me for three hours and from beginning to end, showed me how to make a denture all the way through. And I can't even tell you how valuable that was for someone who didn't know anything about it. And I got to ask all the questions along the way. And that was just one example of the really wonderful um, sort of embrace I got from people in the dental industry who were willing to share their time and their knowledge with me so that my learning curve could be as short as possible. I will be forever grateful to the many people in the dental space who've really helped me become decent at this job. Because at first I didn't know what the hell I was doing.
1: (laughs) And, you know, we hear that a lot, which I love to hear you say that, is that our industry is just so helpful and open, especially when it's, you know, you can help anybody or give them any information or train them. It's just like so amazing how we all
2: relate to each other that way. We hear that a lot. Barb, I, came, I came from an environment where as a litigation attorney, you know, you could have a hundred deals get signed and all by a handshake and 98 of them go great. But I always saw the one or 2% that Turned to crap, right? And so it makes you very cynical about the world and how people behave in the commercial environment when all you see are the terrible results. So I came into this really expecting a cutthroat, difficult, competitive environment. And it's not that there's, it's not competitive. It certainly is. But it is most assuredly not cutthroat. Mm -hmm. And while you have a few people you might describe that way, (laughs) I found myself just so pleasantly shocked At at all my expectations being subverted by the actual nice human beings in the dental space who really were warm and generous and kind to me and then ultimately became both good friends and good partners to me in, in a lot of instances. Awesome.
0: But you mentioned that Keystone previously was in the dental space for
2: 100 years. The companies that we've rolled up have been around for about 100 years. So, you know, uh, names like Mizzy and Heatless Wheels. Um, In my office, I have a Mizzy salesman kit from 1919 with actual heatless wheels in them. So You guys do our, the Mizzy heatless wheels? Those are us, yes. Ah,
0: I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, I know. I, this happens a lot, Elvis. When you have 5,000 <laughs> skews, people go, wait, hey, you guys do that? You're like, yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're pretty full service, both lab and clinical sector. But some of our products have been around for years. Flex Cement. I, one of the first things I did when I got here was a trademark Renewal for Flex Cement. And the original paperwork was from like 1932. Oh, geez. So wow. some of the Keystone products are, have been around for a long time. The current owners bought National Keystone in the about 1973 1974. And then started rolling up smaller dental companies over the years, buying TNS Dental and acquiring the ProForm line of the thermoplastics. And right up until you know, right before I joined Keystone, the last two things I did as their outside lawyer was help them with two deals to purchase uh, Enamelite and then purchase Bosworth. I didn't know I'd have to integrate both of those as the business guy, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what ended up happening. So over time, Keystone had generally. Grown and filled holes in its product catalog by buying small businesses and then kind of getting the efficiency of of integrating them in one space and then ultimately you have a lot of um, one stop shop elements by by rolling up that those types of products. The one thing Keystone has never done in my opinion fantastically well has been organic product development and when I got here, it was the one thing I noticed was really kind of broken, and when i <laughs> I remember when I said to them. I think we're going to do this 3D printing thing and we're going to do it ourselves and we're going to make it and then we're going to brand it. And they, they all kind of looked at me and were like, you know, we stink at that, right? Wow. <laughs> well, that was right. going to be my question. The, the yeah. resin, you guys
0: totally developed it internally.
2: Correct. I had a lot of doubters when we started just because Keystone really hadn't – they'd done it on the cosmetic side. Plenty. In fact, it had reinvented the whole side of the cosmetic side of the business by having something innovative and patentable on the R&D side for cosmetic nails. So my mm-hmm. point to them was, why wouldn't you look at the dental business with the same approach? Like you need something new and interesting. And I think this allows us to do it in a way where we've already invested in a lot of this because of the cosmetic business. Mm-hmm. So, But it took it took some convincing that the new guy <laughs> would be yeah. able to pull together a team and create a line of products like this. And have it branded and partnered. And by the way, I look back on it now, and I think this skepticism was probably warranted. I like to joke that I had the benefit of arrogance and ignorance. Okay? <laughs> Um, I did not know how hard it was going to be. And I had the, oh, I'll show them I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and, the arrogance, and the combination of those two really drove this project for a long time and drove it to a point where it actually started working. So I like someone telling me I can't do it. All right. That definitely energizes me. And having people internally doubt it while still supporting me and giving me the rope to go do it ultimately turned out to be really good for the business and for me because I showed that A, we could do this. And it gave everybody in the business the confidence that with the right planning and strategy and thought and partnerships, you can grow organically, even if it's hard. And so this was an idea that was in our conference room on January 16th, 2016 is the day we sat there and talked about it for the first time. We still have the notes from that meeting. To see it several years later commercially turn into a multi million dollar business that is influential in the space and impacting all of our other parts of our business positively Uh, it's gratifying it's kind of what the strategy was but it was at first being looked at with a healthy dose of skepticism and i think appropriately so because this was not something Keystone had done successfully on the dental side so what do
0: you do pull your r&d in from the nail people and say we need help (laughs) uh, we're
2: gonna be putting this in our mouth now um not a whole lot more complicated than that. <laughs> uh, I know that you, it sounds like as easy as that. It was a, it was more complicated than that. Sure. I think it was multi-step of trying to figure out, first of all, what applications do you want to try and do first? How hard are they? What are the barriers to entry? The biocompatibility piece we knew was going to be very difficult because- in our early experience FDA really didn't understand this technology no. and they needed a lot of internal education to be able to review a 510k so when we submitted the 510k for Kisswin soft i think there was only maybe two or three products that had ever been 510k cleared for going in the body so it took us it took us 11 months to get through FDA cuz oh, they just needed the time to understand it and we they were nice enough to give us the audience to explain this, the chemistry and the science and our approach. And then they, they've gotten better at it over the last couple of years. But, it, but when we first filed, that was a, that was a problem. So it was trying to figure out how could we get to market quickly? How would we partner into the installed printer basis? Cause Keystone was never going to carry its own printer because. Yeah. Wow, why would it. you, Right. We would be terrible. Yeah. At it. We're a yeah. material company. That's what we're great at. We looked in the mirror and go, we'd be terrible at this. And if we, partnered in an OEM fashion in 2017 or 2018, the printers were much more unreliable than they are today. So mm-hmm. to create a great line of resins and partner with an unreliable printer was a bad strategy for us. So okay. we sat down and said, we'll do it the harder way. We're going to figure out which ones to do first and what are our first biocompatible resins going to be? And what is the timeline look like to getting there? And honestly, I think um, in hindsight we made a mistake because I really didn't think it would take 11 months to get through the FDA. And so we started talking about it at IDS in 2019, and we didn't get our 510K till November. And every single day, multiple questions from partners, internal distribution partners, printer partners. Where's your 510K? Do you have your 510K yet? When are you getting your clearance? There's a balance between... Generating early buzz, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. stepping in it early. I think launching, uh, (laughs) we maybe stepped it in it a little early, but ultimately, that's sort of how we did it. Elvis was to sit down and go, "What are the best applications? How do we start to leverage our knowledge and technology that we already know in photopolymers? How do we start to get the best results from formulation tweaks?" And then it's a lot of stuff like. What color should models be? Like Just trying to figure out what the marketplace wanted from some of these resins was difficult when we started. We had to do some market surveys. We talked to a lot of people.
0: Keystone does all the resins, not just Keysplint. I mean, you do models and and all the other stuff, right? Right.
2: So we we have 14 resins now. We have model, we have cast. What started it? What was the first? The first four resins that we put out were the model resin, the castable resin, Surgical guide, which is still an outstanding resin for us. And then uh, a gingival mask. We ultimately went with the second generation of model material after a couple years, which really exploded. Uh, It was much more optimized for high-speed printing and for thermal forming. Uh, And then we focused on our biocompatible line and how to grow them out. So we've been, um, you know, custom trays and um, indirect bonding trays for orthodontic brackets. And uh, we released our try-in material in three shades in april which is going quite well so far our denture base will be available sometime early next year when we finish with fda it took us a little bit longer because we wanted to make sure we were hitting the high impact standards that the industry is expecting from a 3d printed denture and we didn't want to put out something until we felt very confident in it so that that's now rolling out as will be uh crown and bridge and denture teeth and then ultimately permanent teeth uh we also have a sports guard resin coming so that Really, hopefully by the end of next year, we'll have 16 to 18 different resins on the market and have really at that point, a very full and complete line of 3D printing resins for the dental industry.
0: Well, let me ask a dumb question, I guess. When someone makes a resin, is there, and by all means, if this is stuff you can't talk about, feel free to say so, but is there like a base to it? And then it's different chemicals added to it in order to get the different products?
2: No, and and but that's a good question. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad question. In fact, that's that can be a lot of the ways we'll work in the cosmetic space, okay? With the 3D space because um what you're really trying to do is look at look at it from an application perspective, right? Yeah. What do we need a a denture tooth to do? Okay? How long does it have to hold up? How shade accurate does it have to be? What sort of strength do we need it to have? What sort of water resistance do we need it to have? What does the industry expect? What do the ISO standards require Mm -hmm. of us? Okay, so that you, on the front end, you have a whole bunch of targets you're developing to get a product that is going to perform like X, okay? Or or permanent tooth. How are you going to get it close to zirconia? Okay, what are you looking for? Are you going to have to do it with a lot of fillers? There's some consequences for doing it with fillers. So you're sitting down at the first, not with a base formula and going, how do we tweak it to get to this performance? You're really sitting down and going, what do we need the product to do? How do we start choosing monomers and oligomers that leverage some of those performance attributes? And then it's a lot of trial and error, like, you know, you'll you could get 2 to 300 formulation variants before you land on a formula that you feel comfortable with. And and then it's into the testing phase. How does it cure? What what's the biocompatibility profile? So, it's not easy in this space to take a base formula and then to start to sure, it, which you can do in some other areas and other areas in dentistry. You can do it this area, at least for Keystone, is very much driven by what are the performance targets, and then we can start to select raw materials in a way that will drive to those performance targets.
0: That's interesting. So, how many Keystone splints were originally printed? Do you think <laughs> before you got to what was marketable?
2: I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> formulas, the lab geeks came up with. Yeah, I can tell you just, you know, without getting into too much detail, R&D, one of the reasons you don't want to show people a lot of what's going on with R&D sure. is that it's a frustrating process. It's two steps forward, one step back, two mm. steps forward, one step back. And so if you start letting people know what's happening in an R&D process too early, they may not be so attuned to that one step back, right? And it yeah. creates a negative momentum sometimes inside of a company. So we keep the R&D process kind of within a team so that we can experience the pain and not have other people feel the pain as you're developing something.
0: It's a nice way of saying, stop asking me about it, but I appreciate that. Um,
2: <laughs> no, but, but ultimately, what we, ultimately what we had a problem with, with Keysplint was as we were getting ready to nail down the formula, really one of our last checkpoints was water sorption. And we were not where we needed to be. The, the product was taking on too much water. And ultimately that can cause... Not only a fit issue, but a you know some micro fractures and some some early failure. So for that one, we were pretty close to going to FDA with a finished formula. And we had to stop and step back. And it took us like another three or four months to solve that problem. Mm, wow. So it's not a straight line to success. You will have failures. Actually, failures are good. You learn a lot from your failures. Sure. Um, but with key splint, it took us probably two years to get to the point where we got went and said, all right, I think we got it. And then it was another year of testing and then it was rollout. So that one took, and look, they all take a little bit of time. There's just a process and um, also having to test. And then the other piece of it is the validation. Once you get the formula, that's one thing, but we're working with 30 to 40 different print partners. So every resin that we do, Like when we released the try-in resin in the spring, you had to go to our 20 or 30 partners, work with them to get the settings in place, to get the menu set in the system, to get the software set up. We have to run all of our biocompatibility checks. So every time you're doing a resin, you're doing five or six tests for every bit of workflow, and you're trying to get it tuned in. So. Beyond formulating the resins, I think the hardest thing that Keystone does, it certainly is probably the most complicated and expensive thing that I think we've done with the 3D project, is really coming up with a comprehensive, difficult validation process that allows us, whether it's a carbon That's 150 or at least over a three year period or frozen. That's a couple thousand dollars Yeah, that the results of the resin coming out with that and whatever cure box is being used is an apple to an apple to an apple, physical properties, performance attributes and and biocompatibility. That's difficult. That's that's the hardest thing Keystone does here. And I think it's probably the really the thing we unlocked early that allowed us to hit the marketplace as well as we have, is figuring out as quickly as we could how to do that scope of validation. Where are you guys located? We have... Th- three manufacturing locations for the dental business in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, Our headquarters is about 15 minutes from the Philadelphia airport. We have uh, an entire street in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is um, uh, also near um, the Philadelphia suburbs. And then we have our dental manufacturing plant and our fulfillment center is near Lancaster, Pennsylvania.
1: And all of your R&D, everything's done in that location or over there by, it's done in the U.S., I should say? Yes.
2: Yes, it is. We generally do all of our manufacturing in the U.S. I would say in the dental catalog of our 5,000 SKUs or so, probably 80% is made by Keystone and made in the United States. About 20% is by sell or sourced from from other vendors to help us complete our catalog. Wow. Uh, oh, that's so amazing. We make a lot that of our good. stuff. It is complicated but it allows look it allows us to control our destiny so yeah, if, sure if something gets screwed up it's 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 us who screwed it up and we have to hold that responsibility but it also we don't have to be sitting here and hemming and hawing and saying this vendor from overseas and isn't getting us what we need our message to partners particularly here in the u.s is look we're right here in philly like if you really need resin, and we've done this we've literally my customer service manager got in the car and drove resin to connecticut one day because someone needed resin immediately now that's Insane and above and beyond, but we're able to deliver quickly. And because we're making everything here, you're not you're not on a boat for five weeks from China or from Brazil, and you're not stuck in port and you're not stuck in customs. You yeah, know, we're, we're making most of our stuff in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. There's
0: a lot to be said about that.
2: There is. Uh, I'm a buy American guy, but it's not just the pride of buying American here. It's just the simple benefits of logistics and cost of working with an American supplier.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the process of validating your resin on different printers. Do you have the other printer companies do that validation or do you have a room full of all 30 printers you work with?
2: Uh, That's a great question. So the the answer is the latter. Okay. We have uh, our 3D print lab fully staffed now with three full-time people, probably has back there probably 30 printers and 20 or so cure boxes. That's awesome. It is amazing when we bring people through here, like we did Keyprint Day in August. I had my friends from Zahn come down and visit us recently, you know, and they walked in there and they basically all said, nobody has this as a setup. Yeah. People have 30 carbons, but nobody has 30 different printers. One of each. (laughs) We've sort of forgotten about that. When we started this, it was me and a MeCraft in a closet. (laughs) (laughs) like i learned how to 3d print the hard way by like filling resin all over myself and and that's how i learn i learn hands-on but it's grown to a place where i can't do that now and we have people here who are that's all they do is work on that validation so now we have about 30 different printers here it's essential for the validation to, to go smoothly so we've done this over a period of time where we've done it remotely with the print partners like for example Our friends at Carbon, for a long time, we did not have a Carbon printer. And so every time we were working with them on a resin, we're sending print parts back and forth from New Jersey to Redwood City and back again. And it is... You're losing weeks of time just shipping stuff back, and oh free. sure so our message to our partners has been, please help us like lower this time, get us a printer, we can speed the validations along, and then also we like to say things hey, when we bring visitors through, you don't want them to see everybody else's printer here and not yours do you <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's, that's a nice little uh, arm twist that to help also. but the the practical answer is it saves months of time to have for us to have a printer here, and so we've either Buy printers, uh, we get loaners, we get donated printers, whatever it may be, we are leveraging the value back to those print partners because not only are we able to validate quickly to get them up to speed with our current line, but every time we put out a new resin, like last week we put out, we launched Keysplint hard in a clear version and Keysplint soft for everyone, not just carbon. That requires us to start from scratch and go back and go, okay, let's get the Asiga out. Let's get the Rapid Shape out. Mm. Okay, where's the Acureta? Okay, here's the Nexa. And we got to start with all of our partners from square one on a new resin. So it's not just the resins that we have now, but as we're developing and testing new resins, we're able to get them validated quickly and let them hit the ground as we launch, which is something they all want. We have built out our print lab so that it's actually an effective print lab And allows us to serve all of our print partners by doing validations, you know, in a matter of weeks rather than months.
0: It's quite fascinating to me to be able to have all those printers in one room. Because I imagine while you're validating, you're not changing the resin. You're changing settings on printers, right?
2: Correct. So the last thing we want to do as a medical device manufacturer is change the medical device formula. It's odd that in the 3D printing world, the resin is the medical device and the printer is nearly completely unregulated. Yeah. That's, that's the game. And so the burden falls on us to do the validations and to document everything. Now look, I have FDA coming here tomorrow. Uh-oh. I'm very, very excited. <laughs> FDA will be here for the rest of the week and they're doing their audits on our resins this week. OK, so we know we have everything buttoned up because we've yeah. devoted yeah. time and energy to have it buttoned up and we're ready for them. But it's being in a position to tweak the settings of the printer or the settings of the cure box. If we have to tweak the resins, you have to go back. If it's a 510K, you have to go back and get permission from the FDA to make a change and demonstrate the safety of the change. But you have to go back and revalidate everything through your workflow. So we really don't want to change resin formulation if we don't have to. And we spend a lot of time trying to make sure the resins are as ready to go when we hit go. Most of the time, the tweaking is on the end with the partners, uh, who are the printers or the cure boxes to make sure we get the best settings. And it's really a little bit of a trial and error to to dial in accuracy and and physical properties and then biocompatibility. The good thing is, having done this so much over a period of time, we've gotten very efficient at it and we know where, where the landmines are and how to avoid them. And what
0: are you tweaking on the printer? The amount of light, the speed, the hold, the
2: heat, all that? It could be all of those. It depends on the sophistication of the printer. The most basic thing that we're doing when we start is we're trying to dial in time exposure. So here's, here, let's back up a second. We know the exact energy dosage that has to be delivered to our resins to deliver the optimal print,
1: okay? Gotcha, yep. What does that mean to me? Like when you say energy, like- So if
2: you're shining a DLP light, okay, of a projector onto our resin. We know how much intensity that light has to be putting out to get the best cure for our resin. Now, the difference there, Barb, is an Accureta LED versus a carbon, you know, DLP light engine, they're putting out energy at different levels. So the first thing we're trying to do with the printer companies is understand the energy profile of the light engine. Because once we understand that, we can guesstimate what's the best time, right? And then the tweaks are all right, with this printer, KeySplintSoft should get 3.2 seconds of exposure time. And then we'll run some sample prints and we go, oh, that overcured. Okay, let's try 2.8 seconds. And it's literally tweaking until you get to the point where you're, okay, I think we're in the sweet spot now. When we think we're in the sweet spot for accuracy, then we start looking at physical properties, how the resin is performing, what's the biocompatibility profile. It's sort of a step-by-step through the process. First thing is accuracy. Second thing is physical properties. How how is it performing as a dental part that it's expected to perform? And then it's um, several different biocompatible checkpoints. We do monomer extraction to make sure that there's not unreacted monomer in the part. We do external cytotoxicity testing. Um, Every resin goes out for a full wave of irritation, sensitization testing, as well as genotoxicity. So there's a lot of checkpoints that go into it. And when we're dialing it in with that printer, it's largely a matter of time once we understand their energy um, of the printer of the light engine, Uh some printers, you can adjust the energy of the light engine as well. And so that's another thing that you can tweak a little bit in that process. So it's a, it's a trial and error process until you find that sweet spot.
0: How much of this did you learn in law school?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Did you really Uh, think you'd be talking about light output (laughs) no, And and Elvis, if you even told me six years ago that people would look at me as a thought leader in this space, I would have laughed at you. And yet here I am, I've learned a ton and and I can deliver a lot of knowledge. No, I never thought I'd be doing this in law school. (laughs) I never thought I'd be doing anything like this as a lawyer. And even when I joined Keystone, I really didn't even know much about 3D printing. What I will tell you that my practice of law taught me over the years is that I'm I'm a good self-learner and I can teach myself a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. You you got some sparks with you. You have to teach yourself a lot. At 35, I picked up the guitar and taught myself how to play the guitar. That kind of learning and experiential learning gives you the confidence to know, hey, I may not know dental, but I know how to teach myself things. And as I said earlier, having really good, helpful people who were patient with me and wanted to help me was critical. And so I was able to teach myself what I needed. 3D printing, you know, people ask me, how do, how do you learn all of this? And I, I always joke, you know, a little leprechaun came up and handed me a magic code book with all the 3D printing secrets in the world. I'm like, no, it's, you know, you got to read, you have to watch YouTube videos and you have to talk to people who know a lot more than you and then repeat for months on end until you really start to understand it. It just takes time, energy and having some good teachers to help you. Yeah. How do we know looking
1: at the print, that the light is bad, so it does it not print? Is it deformed?
2: What's happening there? All of those, all of those, and that's a great question. A lot of people don't ask that one. Um, yes, these um, these light sources have a, a life cycle, just like any light source. There are pieces of equipment now. We use. Look, we're a chemical manufacturing company who's experts in photocurable materials. We have everything you need here, okay? But if you have a three D printer in your lab, you may not. Um, we have a, a device called a spectrophotometer that we're able to use both with the cure boxes and with the printers to make sure that the light engines are not degrading over time so that we're seeing a, a failure of performance. The best thing to do is for a lab who's looking to make sure they're on top of that issues is to be talking to their vendor for printers and for cure boxes to understand what the general useful life of the light engine is and when they need to start to pay attention to swapping them out. Some of the LED companies will actually provide you with multiple LEDs at the start because they know that those engines burn out fast. The best thing that someone can do is make sure that they're asking that question up front because it's a hidden cost and it's also a hidden problem. If your printer goes down and suddenly you can't print, I think we all know that that's a a headache for the lab. So uh, it's
1: a great question. So I'm curious, how does a lab know when their light source goes bad or it needs to be calibrated? Can you tell with the resin-like denseness? Is it not cured? Is it like slimy? Is there a way for a lab to check before the prints start going bad and getting to that?
2: You probably would see it not setting as well or not getting as full of a cure. So one of the things you can always do as just a quick test point when you're looking at 3D stuff coming out of the printer and the cure box is if it's tacky and feels tacky, it is not cured, right? If it has an acrylic smell, it's not cured. <laughs> like the nose knows, right? Yeah, so yeah. sometimes it's a little bit of the tactile senses will tell you, hey, this is not what I'm used to experiencing at this stage of the printing or this stage of the printing. Another way to do it is to, if you can get some spectrophotometers that are not super expensive, particularly if you're a lab who's heavily invested in curable technologies, it's probably worth it. And then every couple months, you know, as a part of your routine maintenance, you should be checking the strength of your light engine to make sure there's not a degradation so that the parts you're putting out are, are, have the right properties and the right biocompatibility. You definitely don't want to put under cured materials in anybody's body.
1: So is it the same for the light cure box?
2: And why do we need to use a light cure box
1: if the printer is curing as its prints? I don't understand that. The,
2: the good news is the post cure box is really the kind of the dirty little secret in 3D printing. Every print coming off a printer is, you know, 80 or 85 percent of the way cured. The cure box gets you to that last stage. And so really making sure you have a cure box that's performing the right way is the best checkpoint against, you know, lack of biocompatible results.
0: You think we'll ever get away from the cure box?
2: Um, I know everybody would like to. Yeah, Um, that
0: post-processing is really getting in the way.
2: It is. And so I will tell you, there's a lot of good solutions out there right now for some more efficient washing, reduction of IPA. Uh, A lot of people obviously want to have less IPA in their lab if Mm -hmm. they can because of the hazards. But if you're using curable technologies, I'm hard pressed to see you ever really getting away from the, the final cure If anything, it's the safety check so that, you know, almost for your liability and your risk management to know that you've put out something that isn't going to hurt someone. So as long as you're using technologies that are designed like this, I think you're always going to have a post-cure step. Yeah. It could probably become more efficient, and there are some better cure boxes coming out that either have bigger cure chambers so you can cure more at once or have some more strength to them. But right now, I would say I don't really see that as being a step that goes away. It may be a step that gets integrated into other parts of the process, but I think you are always going to need a post cure.
0: Yeah, that's that's cool. I was just hoping.
2: <laughs> I know the science of the
0: science. Unfortunately,
2: <laughs> come on, nerds, work on it. But they are working on things like water washable resins. I've and things seen like that. that. Yeah, uh, I am still a little dubious of it, but people are looking for greener solutions, faster solutions, safer solutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you're calibrating on all the different printers, what are you printing to check accuracy? Is there like, I mean, are you printing the same denture on all of them or is there something? We will not
2: start with dental parts when we're checking accuracy. Interesting. So, we'll, so what do you do? do is we will start with, you know, kind of a proprietary 3D printing file that's designed. Th- and this is really kind of your, your engineer geeks. I yep. ones to really know what to do here, but it's designed to really, Make sure you're getting the best, most accurate prints from an X, Y, and Z standpoint so that you're getting um, not overcure and you're not getting flashing and you're getting a good enough cure through the part. So we we have over time used several different parts to get a visual check. We now have one that we, we really like that we feel like it gives us a good visual, quick, accurate assessment.
0: That's measurable. Uh, Yeah,
2: I get you. Well, it's measurable by the eye, okay? And with some, you know, some calipers and with a ruler and stuff. To double-check the accuracy when we think we're there, we will go and run metrological scans against the original STL files, usually in a dental part, to see how much is, you know, plus or minus 50 to 100 microns of accuracy across the original STL file. But at first, we'll take a kind of a visual look at that file and if it hits the benchmarks that we want, we'll move into the more digital assessment of the accuracy, mm-hmm. and we'll check physical properties at that point. We'll do tensile strength, flexural strength, eye notched impact, and we want to see basically how the part is performing. If we're getting good performance on the properties for the targets we've hit, and we're getting good accuracy, then we know we're getting pretty close, and that's where we start to really try and tweak the accuracy and start looking at biocompatibility. So the first checkpoint is really a visual check, and that process can take a couple days to really get it dialed in, particularly if we're not familiar with the printer yet. Sure. Something I've heard mentioned about
0: Keysplint a lot is it was one of the very first, and maybe still the only one, that was able to do it clear. Do I understand that right, that the other ones had a lot of trouble getting that old analog look, I guess?
2: Yeah, I do think it's challenging. Uh, It was challenging for us. Why is clear Um, hard?
0: I don't get it. I mean...
2: A combination of a couple things. The biggest reasons it's hard is sort of the best selections of photo initiators. So that's the, in a photopolymer, you've got a monomer and a polymer, right? Usually think about your lab. If you take a liquid and a powder, you mix it together, it starts to cure, right? Or if you put it down to the heat, it'll start to cure. A photopolymer has both the monomer and the polymer in it already together and mixed, right? What's keeping it from curing? There's an inhibitor in there, okay? The inhibitor keeps the cure from starting. What gets rid of the inhibitor? There's a photo initiator when you shine a light on it of a certain wavelength that takes the inhibitor out and starts the, the polymer reaction. Okay. So the photo initiator that's used in a lot of curable systems or the choices of photo initiators are used in, in curable systems tend to have a little bit of a yellowing effect when they do not completely react ah. out of the part. Um, this has been an issue with acrylics for decades, it's why if you have a soda bottle and you hold it up to the light, you'll see it has maybe a little bit of yep, a blue yep. tint to it. Same thing with your Ziploc bags, because they're putting a little bit of purple tint into it to kind of hide the yellowing that comes from any plastic. Yeah, nobody security. wants a yellow Ziploc okay. bag. Right? So that was a real challenge for us here. It continues to be a challenge with any clear. So the, one of the reasons it took us another year and a half to put out a clear version of Key Splint Hard was the chemistry was reacting a little differently than key splint soft. And we were seeing more yellowing, and we had to tweak that to try and get that taken care of. It's hard. It's hard for all acrylics. So the reason you don't see a ton of splints that are truly clear is the chemistry challenge and the challenge of really tweaking it to the printer and the cure box so that you are reducing the yellowing as much as possible. It's been our biggest challenge. We were able to do it with carbon quickly. But it's also one of the reasons we put a violet tint in KeySplint for in not the clear version uh, for a couple of reasons. One, if you talk to users and doctors, half of them say they want something clear and they'll never consider anything other than something clear. Yeah. And half of them, go, oh, I want something tinted. This thing's disgusting after two weeks in my mouth. I don't want it so clear. It's kind of a choice thing. So we put a tint in it a little bit to make sure that there was no obvious yellowing. Cause pe- as you just said, Elvis, nobody kind of likes no. the aesthetic of that. And the second thing was, you know, it lasts longer in terms of its, its aesthetics, once it's going in the body, I don't have to decide what's, better or not. I just create tools. So we have a clear and a tint and the marketplace can choose. And we have a hard and a soft and the marketplace can choose which of those is the best therapies. We're making tools and good tools for people to make those choices.
0: That is so interesting. I had no idea. I thought clear would be easy,
2: but... No, it's actually really, really hard. When
0: it takes out of that inhibitor, is that what it's called? The inhibitor.
2: Yep. Where does that go? In the air? It reacts out basically reacts out like a chemistry. So think about a chemical reaction. If you expose alcohol to the air, it evaporates very quickly, right? So there's a chemical reaction that's happening between the oxygen and and the alcohol. The inhibitor, when it's zapped with light, it is basically evaporated and the chemical reaction starts. All right.
1: So I'm curious, where do you launch these new resins and how many new resins do you have coming out?
2: Yeah, here's, here's what we got going for the next few months. We're going to be at Vision 21 in Las Vegas. Uh, we love that show. Uh, probably my favorite one of the year. Obviously, Chicago is a big deal for everybody, so we will be at Chicago. We have uh, a bunch of speaking that we're lining up right now, both with partners and on our own. We will be at IDS. It'll be interesting this year to have a real yeah. IDS. Um,
0: is it really 2023? Is the next ID? Okay.
2: Right. Yep. So it'll be in March. We have a European um, sales office and warehouse in Southern Germany. So we have a good presence in, in Germany already, and we love that show. So we will be there for that. Coming new from Keystone over in the coming months. Last week, we launched our clear version of hard splint and soft splint for everybody, not just for carbon. So it's, it's now open to all of our partners. Next week or the following week, we'll be launching our High-impact, pourable acrylic version of Diamond D. So Diamond D has been an outstanding high-impact, yeah. high-end acrylic for years.
0: Are you going to be driving over it with a truck and doing all the things that you have to do? Probably.
2: Yeah. I, I like I liked Sprint Ray recently. I saw them uh, having some strong guys on Muscle Beach in California trying to break them. I would just like to see somebody drop it at a sink. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> You know what I'd like to see Elvis. I'd like to see people show them soaking it in water for seven days before there they drive the There you go. Truck over. <laughs> Let's take it real world, because <laughs> then I want to see how it performs. But the high impact pourable acrylic, while well, an analog product, is a really a, an excellent completion to our, you know, more traditional denture products. And people are still pouring a oh, lot yeah. of dentures. Digital, we're as excited as anybody about digital dentures, but there's still a lot of pour out there. And this is an outstanding material. Early next year, pending five ten k. We will have our denture base ready to go. We will have our denture tooth and our crown and bridge material ready to go. Permanent teeth might take a little bit longer later in the year, but I expect by Q2, we'll have those three kind of premium resins for us out. We'll be making a big deal about those later in the what year. What could you possibly um, have left? <laughs> now, we we had these things going. I, I hope to get a, a few more of these out this year, but it just, you know, we got piled up a little bit and, um, it's okay. It's the sort of the the one thing I figured out is that the one thing I consistently do well at Keystone is consistently guess wrong how long it's going to take to develop a new product. And I'm off by about half every time. So later in the year, next year, we will have a 3D printed sports guard material, which I'm very excited about. Is that a first? I've not heard of this. Not for a D. I haven't seen anybody with the DLP yet. I've seen a couple that are filament well, printed. Yeah. Um, I have one I, for my file. I tried it in last week and I was. Very pleased with how it felt nice. as a sports card. So we'll be moving ahead with that. And then um, we're also in the process of working on a denture characterization kit for mostly for three D printing. It's kind of like a, what I would call a, a volume yeah. optical So instead of like an artisan kit, it's a, it'll be seven or eight bottles that have a, a variety of different colors to help um, characterize the gingiva. But I think the thing I like best about this is that it'll have a clear coat with fibers. And uh-huh. so you could take a 3D printed denture and in 30 seconds quickly apply a coating and cure it in the cure box and it dramatically improves the, the appearance of a rather dull looking 3D printed denture in seconds and for really just a you know maybe a dollar per arch. So that I'm very excited about. That's going to take a little bit longer with 510K, but um, we really see that as being positioned to sort of not like the artisans palette for optically, but really a high speed application for labs who are doing a lot of denture quickly. So that's one I'm really excited about, and the testing is looking really good on that. So that's a lot, Barb. That's like what five or six products. Um, I don't think we'll get them all out even next year, but we're going to push hard because we've been working on them all this year as well. So, so how can people find out more about these new resins when they come out? I'll, I'll bring some to Vegas and show you when we see you in a couple months.
0: And most of it's just being held up with the good old FDA, right? I mean, you're ready to go, right?
2: Yeah, FDA, most of it is either in its final stages of testing or is with FDA. So as far as formulas being locked and being tested by professionals in the field to give us feedback, that is done. So each one of these has been sort of gotten feedback from experts in the field early to give us... Feedback, help us make some tweaks, help to improve the product, which is an important part of the R&D process that I love. It's a, maybe my favorite part of the R&D process is dealing with the smart dental professionals who get excited about seeing something early and giving us mm. valuable feedback. I love that. Just love that. All those products I just talked about have had a lot of feedback from the field already. Nice.
0: So how often do you get asked what's your favorite printer and are you allowed to answer it?
2: Um, I, we are asked multiple <laughs> times a week. You have them all. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Look, I'll be very honest with you, because uh, I tend to be honest and direct. Uh, my message to our team, sure, because we work with so many printers, is first thing we do when someone asks us that is very honestly, we'll say, okay, what are you trying to do? Yeah, What are you doing? You're trying to do a couple models. You're doing one splint. Are you volume producing? If you give us senses to your use, we can help you get into the segment that you want and make some recommendations on what might be best for you. But one of the things that we do because we work with so many printer partners is I pounded into our team is every printer has something positive to say about it. Yeah. Okay? They all do. We're not going to talk negatively about our printers. Of course not. In a front-facing <laughs> way. We're not going to say the build plate's too small or this thing's slow. We'll talk. We'll emphasize the positives. So we are asked probably ten times a week across our whole team what printers would we recommend, and what we usually do is try and understand what the users are really trying to do, and then we can hone in with some choices within each segment, whether it's the low cost models, the middle of the market, or the the high price, high volume printers. We have a lot of opinions, and look, we play with them all, so we have informed yeah. opinions about it. That was
0: products. a safe lawyer like answer, man.
2: Thank you. <laughs> I said a lot and didn't say a word.
0: (laughs) That was the lawyer part of it. (laughs) Ira, thank you so much. This is awesome stuff.
2: Guys, thank you very much. It's been uh, really uh, fun to talk to you. I I always enjoy speaking with you guys. I love listening to the podcast. As I said, I've learned a lot from it over the years. It's good market intelligence for me. I know when I'm having a meeting with someone, I search your database. and And if I don't know them well, I'm listening to your interview for an hour to try and figure out a little bit about them. So, thank you for for that.
1: And I just like to say thank you because I think your company has been super open and honest about all of your resins.
2: I'm an open book. You can just call and ask. Them. Well, you've
0: managed to create a printable splint that has set the bar in the industry, and uh, thank you. I think it's great. We look forward to seeing all the exciting things coming out of Keystone.
2: We look forward to seeing you guys, and we'll keep trying to put out the best products we can. And uh, we love having the feedback from the people in, in the lab space there. They are smart. They know what they're looking for. They give great advice and feedback. And uh, uh, we just love being able to interact with everybody in the space. Oh, yeah. They'll
0: tell you when it doesn't work.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, that's true. Still, which is that's great. True. Or they'll go, hey, you know, you know, then you also get the things like, hey, whatever you do, don't put out a model that's gray. <laughs> the next guy goes, whatever you do, you have to have a gray model. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm done trying to figure you guys out. <laughs> we
0: all agree to disagree. Thanks, Ira. We'll talk to you thanks soon. You guys. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.
1: A big thanks to Ira. And I'm going to say Rosanaw because Elvis couldn't. For coming on our podcast to openly talk about Keystone Industries and the amazing Key Splint Resin. Who would like to have some time in their printer room? Hello. To have 20 or 30 printers all in the same place to play with? Amazing. It's a dental technician's dream for sure. If you don't have Key Splint in your lab, you really should look at it because not only is it a great product, but as we just learned, It's backed by a really super great company. Hey guys, head over to keyprint.keystoneindustries.com. I had to slow that down because I'm a bad reader. To learn more about all they have to offer. And thanks again, Ira. We can't wait to see what amazing resins you come out with next. And we know you will. Do you think anyone even noticed that we had to re-record about half of my dialogue because of the technical difficulties God, I hope not. And you know why? It's because Elvis is amazing. One of the many pleasures of doing a weekly podcast, but I hope you guys loved it.
0: I thought it went in really well, and I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, it it really flowed well.
1: All right, because I really enjoyed talking to him, and I think I had some pretty good questions.
0: Well worth re-recording. Well, thank you, my partner. All right, everybody. Have a great New Year. We will talk to you in 2023. Have a good one. Happy New Year. Bye.
1: Bye. damn you're talking a lot. Here we go. I know.